Last year, Xi Jinping secured an unprecedented third term as General Secretary of the Communist Party, President of the country, and leader of the military. But his path to power has been anything but ordinary. Xi rose to prominence by projecting an image of stability and competence. However, throughout his time in office, he has doubled down on party control, decimating state institutions and interfering with the economy. What's happening in China uh, is an example of how quickly economic events can turn around. His aggressive foreign policy has strained relationships with the United States and caused China's global popularity to plummet. And despite his domestic grip, cracks have begun to appear, with protests and the end of his widely unpopular zero-COVID policy. Um, so they have an ambitious agenda, uh, but again, I think the constraint there is between sort of near-term readiness um, and long-term capacity. So, how should we interpret Xi's continued grip on power? And what political, economic, and military opportunities and constraints lie ahead, shaping the trajectory of his future leadership? This is Global Insights by Network 2020. Today, what Xi's third term means for China and the United States. Joining us is Dr. Yukong Wang, Dr. Ling Li, and Dr. Joel Wuthnow. Yukong Wang is a senior fellow with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a renowned expert on China's economy with extensive experience as the World Bank's country director for China. He has authored several books, including Cracking the China Conundrum, Why Conventional Economic Wisdom is Wrong. Ling Li is a Chinese studies professor at the University of Vienna specializing in Chinese law and politics. She has conducted extensive research on the structural aspects of the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese Party State, with a specific emphasis on corruption, anti-corruption efforts, and the functioning of courts in China. Joel Wuthnow is a senior research fellow at the Institute for National Strategic Studies, specializing in Chinese foreign and security policy, Chinese military affairs, U.S.-China relations, and strategic developments in East Asia. He's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service. Moderating the discussion is Courtney Doggett, president of Network 2020. We are going to start uh, with you, uh, Ling where we generally like to start, which is laying some groundwork for everyone. So the Chinese 20th Party Congress wrapped up predictably uh, with the third term for General Sec Secretary Xi Jinping. Um, he was basically cementing his grip on power. Uh, before we jump into those details though, could you take us a few steps back and explain the basics to our audience? Uh, what is the National Party Congress and what happens there? And what was really notable about this 20th Party Congress in your mind? Uh, the, the Party Congress is uh, a forum to re-elect the central party leadership in a five-year circle. It's an indirect election and it's a, 
uh, actually it's a selection selection process that is presented as an election. Uh, so the most important item on the agenda is the uh, election of all top party decision-making bodies, including the, uh, the, the Politburo and its standing committee, the Central Committee, the Central Military Commission, and the Central Commission of Discipline and Inspection. And there are several other agenda, uh, items on the agenda that includes uh, the amendment of the party charter, uh, which which is also uh, characterized as a constitution of the party, and it also includes two rules to work report of two party institutions. One is a work report of the uh, Central Committee, uh, the, the outgoing Central Committee, and another work, work report is from the outgoing Central Commission of Discipline and Inspection. So that, that's the, the, the main agendas for the Congress. And uh, can, I just want to add one uh, not small matter. After the congression finishes, uh, the congress ends, all the delegates go sightseeing in Beijing or go home, uh, the, the elected central committee members will stay to elect the uh, top tier decision-making bodies, which is the Politburo, Politburo Standing Committee, and the Central Secretariat, the Central Military uh, Commission, and the decision-making body of the CCDI, the Central Commission of Discipline and Inspection. At the Congress, they only elect the, the Central Committee, which is a lower tier of the decision-making body. The top tier is a job for the Central Committee, not the Congress. And, and just as follow up to that, what stood out to you um, when you were observing uh, the, the the Congress from afar? Um, any any anything that that seemed surprising or not surprising um, that that as an that piqued your interest as an analyst? Uh, well, everyone is anticipating that Xi Jinping will uh, retain a third term as a general party secretary, uh, but. We need to see that is officially confirmed, and people are, uh, were anxious to see uh, the new lineup of the top party decision-making body in the Politburo and the Politburo Standing Committee. But obviously, what happened at the closing ceremony, <laughs> uh, which is so unexpected, uh, it has made everything else seems uh, less significant than they should be. Uh, but the drama aside, the uh, the selection, the new lineup of the top decision-making bodies, including the Paul Bureau Standing Committee and the Paul Bureau, uh, has several uh, decisions that, that are quite surprising. One is the premature access of two age-eligible uh, Paul Bureau Standing Committee members, Li Keqiang and Wang Yang. Uh, they were both 67, which is below the age limit at the time of the election, but both were expelled out of the Paul Bureau Standing Committee. And another violation of the, the, the conventional norm is the stay of and one promotion of two members. Uh, one is uh, Zhang Youxia, who uh, got re-elected at the age of 72, way beyond the age limit. 
Uh, so he was re-elected to the Politburo. And the other case of violation is uh, concerning Wang Yi, the current Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, who was at the age of 69 at the time of election, which is also beyond the age limit. And he was promoted to the Politburo. So these uh, two cases of uh, premature exit of two age eligible eligible members, and two cases, one concerning staying at the Power Bureau, one concerning promoting to the Power Bureau, against who, for, for two members, uh, both, of, both of whom have gone beyond the age limit. That's some uh, conspicuous uh, violation of the current uh, age norm. Thank you. And I'd like to get into um, the significance of, of that within the Politburo um, in, in the next round of questions. So, so thank you so much for, for foreshadowing that and bringing that up. Um, I would like to turn to you, Yukon, right now to talk about the economy. So after being delayed for a week, the official data, I think it was re released last week, revealed that China's economy in the third quarter rebounded to 3.9%, which beat the forecasts of 3.2 to 3.3% growth, but still lags the official target of 5.5%. Um, you gave a talk about four years ago, right after she took the office for the second term to talk about the reform contradictions that he would be facing. So with all of this in mind, what are you looking at now? What are some of the economic considerations that she must face in his future leadership? And how really can he continue to finance his policies like modernizing the military or zero COVID? Um, what, what really needs to be done differently for China's economy to continue to grow? What's happening in China uh, is an example of how quickly economic events can turn around. If you go back to last year, China grew at 8% a year the highest of any major economy. And the forecast for this year of 5.5% seem reasonable. But the reality is that China will be lucky to grow at even 3%. And the answer is why? What's the dramatic lowering of expectations? Well, I think the principal one is the property market. For two decades, three decades now, China's growth has been largely driven by construction, the building of apartments and condominiums. And what happened, of course, was that the pace of urbanization is moderated society's aging, but the financing model that China's been using no longer is workable. It was based on the fact that developers would take the deposits of households and use it to finance future purchases of land. And this would work as long as land prices were rising. But when land prices started to stabilize and actually come down, they ran into financing problems and developers ran out of money to finish the housing and uh, homeowners are starting to stop their mortgage payments. So you have a housing crisis, a financial crisis in the property market. Uh, in the past, you could count on local governments uh, to stimulate the economy by expanding infrastructure investments, but local governments are running short of revenues, so they really cannot do that. Third, China has been benefiting from what I call rapid growth in exports to the United States and Europe over the last couple of years during the pandemic, but that's moderated. Europe is starting to go into recession. There's discussions in the US about inflation and recession. So expansion of exports to the West no longer can save China. On top of that, you have China's draconian zero COVID policies. Every time you lock down a major city, growth probably comes down by two, three, four tenths of a percent. And they're facing that prospect again. 
So they're going to be lucky to grow at 3%. And they're going to be lucky to grow at 3% in the future unless something happens. Can China remain financially viable at 3%? Not really. It has very uh, ambitious plans to modernize, become more innovative, become more prosperous. They need to grow to 5 to 6% in the future. But if they are going to grow at 5 to 6%, they need a different growth model. And this is the problem, the contradiction that China faces. China is a very heavily distorted economy. And the paradox is these distortions also mean that you can grow more rapidly if you address these distortions. And the major one is the role of the state in allocating resources. And let me just give you one very important example. In China, there's a policy called Huko. Huko tells you where you can live. And, and you cannot move or live in a place and be officially recognized without a formal residency permit. And if you look at China's major cities like Shanghai, Beijing, Shenzhen, about 40% of the population don't have formal residency rights. They're called migrant workers. And although they're Chinese, they can't buy housing, they can't rent a car, they can't send the children to local schools. But if you gave them formal residency rights, recognize their right to live where they are, this would dramatically increase consumption and potential investment demand. And that by itself probably could increase growth by at least one percentage point. But let me point out another very significant example. Over the last 20 years, Xi Jinping has been addressing what he would call inequalities, poverty. So a large share of government investments have been going into the far west and in the interior. The problem is the returns on investment, investments in the far west and interior are much lower than the more commercial areas in the, in the central province and the coastal provinces. And this is becoming a problem now. But if you balance that a little bit more, start channeling resources to where there are higher returns, again, this would boost, uh, boost up growth rates. The other major issue is state enterprises. The rates of return between state enterprises and private enterprises has widened considerably over the last decade. They're about four or five percentage point differences, and that's extraordinarily large. They used to be the same 15 years ago, but now there's a gap of 5%. So you need to actually reform the way money is being channeled between state enterprises and private enterprises. So if China did this, you could grow 5 to 6% in the future. But there's also a huge problem coming. China wants to become more self-sufficient particularly innovation technology that costs a lot of money, but the returns don't occur until let's say a decade from now. So the growth rate actually is going to come down a little bit, even because China wants to become more innovative. And this is a huge challenge for China. Great, thank you, Yukon. You just mentioned, I think a lot of um, interesting observations that I think will have implications for both of what Ling and Joel will talk about too. And so I hope, I hope that we can get into that a little bit later, you know, whether in the Q&A or in the next questions. Um, but Joel, just uh, turning to you now, uh, the 20th Party Congress political report included a revamped section on China's military modernization and national defense that is longer and features notable changes compared to the 19th Party Congress report. Can you tell us about the current capability of the PLA? What are China's short-term and long-term goals for the PLA? And do you see any major changes in PLA politics after this most recent party Congress? Uh, sure, uh, thanks. Thanks, Courtney, and good morning, everyone. Um, so I would say, first of all, is that when we talk about the PLA, China's military, I think you know for the last 25 or 30 years, we've seen really quite significant uh, development. So the PLA, 
of today is very, very different from what China's leaders inherited from the 1990s or even the early 2000s. Uh, so if we look across the, the spectrum of advanced capabilities, whether it's uh, surface combatants such as destroyers, if we're talking about fighter jets, even if we're talking about things like tanks, they have really moved up the value chain so that they now have capabilities that rival, um, I would say, some of the best equipment that the U.S. military um, is fielding. So they've put in quite a lot of investment into hardware. They've also put investment into what we might call software of the PLA. So in other words, uh, training, doctrine, organization, people, uh, things like this that all contribute uh, to sort of military effectiveness. So the PLA that Xi Jinping inherited when he came in in 2012 was very different from the one that, for instance, Jiang Zemin inherited when he came in um, towards the end of the 1980s. All right, so what are some of the key long-term and short-term issues that the PLA is wrestling with? Well, I would say, you know, first of all, there is there is a bit of a tension here because the PLA, on the one hand, is seeking to operate uh, within the region um, at increasing distances, at increasing uh, durations, and so on. Uh, they are out and about um, in the South China Sea, the East China Sea, the Taiwan Strait, across the Himalayan borders, um, enforcing China's uh, territorial uh, claims. Um, and they're doing that on a daily basis, and we've also seen quite an uptick um, in this sort of enforcement activity. In other words, the PLA going uh, beyond China's borders and um, enforcing, uh, and sometimes even actually um, coming into contact with um, foreign forces. Uh, so this is a near-term requirement that requires readiness, um, that requires them to be on alert, to be in good shape, and so on. But there's a tension here with sort of the long-term modernization of the PLA. So they need to uh, continue to invest in higher-end uh, technology and new um, kinds of systems to keep them ahead of the of, of the head of the curve. Um, so if we look at how they're balancing the tension, um, you know, right now I would say they're actually putting a bit more emphasis into near-term readiness because they can't afford uh, to be caught off guard. And so the PLA's budget, if we break it down by category, um, the training and the maintenance inside of the budget is increasing, um, which they need to do because they've bought a lot of new stuff that needs to be maintained. Um, and the uh, procurement side of the budget, so this is sort of the long-term modernization, that side has actually been decreasing um, because uh, the near-term requirements are so uh, prodigious for them. Now, if we look at the 19th uh, party, uh, the uh, 20th, uh, 20th Party Congress uh, uh, result for the for the uh, for the PLA, um, a lot of the language that was used when they discussed sort of the goals for the PLA is really quite uh, consistent uh, with the way they've talked about things in the past. Um, and so, I'll give you um, maybe four four concise examples of what this really means for the PLA and its direction. Uh, so, first of all, they reference joint operations. So, this is the requirement for the services of the PLA to be able to work together. Uh, so if we're talking about, for example, regional contingencies, uh, future wars and conflicts with Taiwan or others, the PLA needs to be able to work as a team, but historically that, ha that hasn't really been the way they've operated, um, and so it's still kind of a goal for them. Uh, second, they talk about what they call intelligentized uh, equipment and systems. So what they're really talking about here um, is harnessing uh, new kinds of technology, including things like um, artificial intelligence and quantum computing, even military uh, systems like hypersonic missiles, but working these new systems uh, into the PLA's current force structure, so intelligentization. 
Uh, third, they reference a military civil fusion. So the idea here is that the PLA will be able to leverage um, innovations and other contributions from the civilian economy and to break down sort of the stovepipes or barriers that have historically separated those two. So this is a matter of technology, but also a matter of cost savings and efficiency uh, for the PLA um, if they're able to, for instance, uh, buy new things or use civilian transportation assets and so on. Uh, and then, you know, finally, I think, you know, what they're talking about is um, sort of deterrence. So Xi Jinping mentioned a new phrase, one that he hasn't used before called uh, building a strategic uh, deterrence force system. Um, this is an old phrase, but it's not been one that she has been focused on so much. And so when he references this, I think what he's talking about is continuing to build out uh, both the nuclear side of the PLA, and we've seen a pretty rapid and dramatic expansion of their nuclear capabilities, um, but also um, building out important uh, sort of uh, strategic but not nuclear um, conventional capabilities, such as things like cyber weapons or anti-satellite weapons and so on, uh, to be able to deter uh, not only the United States, but also any other U.S. allies uh, or potential adversaries that could get into a conflict. So building, in other words, the uh, deterrent muscle uh, of the PLA. Um, so they have an ambitious agenda. Uh, but again, I think the constraint there is between sort of near-term readiness um, and long-term capacity. Okay, great. Th thank you, Joel. Um, Lynn, going back to you, you you set us up really well, I think, in the last question by referencing some of the unexpected changes that came from the 20th Party Congress. Um, I, I think you've referenced the, the the removal of Hu Jintao as sort of the um, the event that everybody focused on, but there there were some other interesting uh, decisions being made, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the Politburo. And so um, I'd love to just pick up there. What what do you read into these decisions as to who was in and who was out um, when it comes to the decisions made regarding the Politburo? And why, and why does that matter? Why does it matter with the Politburo in particular? Okay. Uh, thank you, Courtney, for the question. Um, so many people pay a lot of attention to the specific uh, appointment decisions, uh, who gets in, who, get, who gets out. Uh, that is uh, very important. But for me, uh, the most interesting things to observe is the long-term patterns, especially concerning uh, some institutional norms that the party has developed during the past decades, uh, because these norms are not written down in party regulations. So they're kind of fragile. Uh, and it's very important to see whether the pattern is uh, continue to be observed and conformed with. So uh, a lot of things have happened with uh, the norm. The, the, the only observable norm uh, that's been regulating the exits uh, from power of all sitting members of the Paul Bureau and the Standing Committee, as well as accessions to these decision-making bodies, is uh, the age-based norm, the so-called Qishang Baxia. And there, it has been consistently observed during the last two decades, at least, uh, depending on what, what, what age we're, we're going to use as a cut off uh, age. Uh, but this time, Xi Jinping has made several 
uh, conspicuous violations. The the first violation it looks ostensible after its explanation afterwards, but nevertheless, it's still a violation is the premature exit of uh, Li Keqiang and uh, Wang Yang because it used to be a privilege or pre prerogative for all sitting Politburo Standing Committee members to stay, and the only reason for them to leave is they have exceeded the age limit and both people have not uh, exceeded the age limit but they were according to the official account which i think is the party's effort uh, trying to salvage the norm uh, by saying both decided both made the self-sacrificing decision to voluntarily retire early so as to make space for the newcomers to come in uh, but nevertheless, uh, because people wouldn't believe it's an entirely voluntary, voluntary decision that they decided to leave. So whatever it is, uh, their departure is premature and it's uh, it's a dent to the to the age norm. Uh, the other violation is, as I mentioned earlier, the 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 staying of Zhang Youxia uh, at the age of seventy two at the Power Bureau and the incoming of Wang Yi at the age of 70, uh, 69. But having said that, I think we shouldn't uh, blow all this violation out of proportion because uh, I, I did a, a counting of 42 cases uh, concerning all the departures and uh, the incomings of all the members at the Politburo level. And we have uh, two hard violations and two soft violations by soft web violations, I mean the party try to salvage it and try to qualify it. Uh, and for all the rest, 38 cases, they, they have all complied with the age limit norm. Uh, so I would say that the norm is still quite resilient because it's very valuable for the party and the party leader because it provides the party a very valuable instrument to uh, uh, facilitate the access from power of the current leaders and to reinvigorate the party leadership, which is very important, and to redistribute power among the party uh, elite core in a large scale and in a peaceful manner. Uh, so uh, that that's still preserved to a large extent. That's uh, one of the findings. If we have time, I can talk about the counterfactuals later. Maybe. Okay, great. Um, if yeah, I mean, I, I think we'd love to hear about that. If you have just, you know, I don't know if you can do that in a minute or two, but it would be interesting to hear about the counterfactuals. The counterfactuals. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so the counterfactuals are the things that hadn't happened because um, uh, there are certain there two notable marked path that Xi Jinping could have taken but decided not to. One is uh, the enlargement of the Power Bureau Standing Committee. Uh, he could have introduced four of his loyalists into the Power Bureau Standing Committee without pushing out Li Keqiang and Wang Yang, thus violating the age norm. Uh, and he, he, he obviously uh, knew about that option because he resized the Power Bureau, but not the Power Bureau Standing Committee. So that's a very interesting decision. Why 
it is why is it so imperative for him to push out uh, Li Keqiang and Wang Yang? That's uh, I don't know immediately the answer, but it's a, a interesting question to ask. The second counterfactual is the reactivation of the party chairmanship, uh, because that will provide him a greater commanding power, security, and prestige. And currently, with this level of control uh, over the Politburo Standing Committee members and the entire party leadership, old and new, uh, I would be—I I believe he would have pulled it off if such a motion is put forward. And I believe such a motion uh, has been put. Uh, Mm, uh, presented by some of the subordinates, but uh, he showed considerable self-discipline in holding back from pursuing this path. So this combination of radical decision to uh, push out Wang Yang and Li Keqiang, not enlarge the uh, Power Bureau Standing Committee, and the very self-constrained decision not to pursue for the higher title uh, is a very curious picture. Uh, to look at. Okay, thank you. A lot of questions um, that that your 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 analysis generates. So th thank you, Ling. Um, Yukon, um, turning back to you, the U.S.-China economic relationship is is a huge one. Um, where do you see that relationship going? Given that she will be continuing to lead China for the foreseeable future. It's a very good question. Let's go back a little bit uh, and ask. How did we get into this kind of very difficult situation? You go back four years, President Trump launched what has been called the U.S.-China trade war. And basically, he did that by placing punitive tariffs on the bulk of imports coming from China. And he formulated a purchase agreement um, asking China to buy certain goods from the United States, ranging from soybeans um, to energy. Uh, to manufactured goods. So that was the principal instruments uh, for launching the trade war. And the idea then was that China's had a huge trade surplus with the United States. So the tariffs or these purchase agreements would reduce these trade deficits. That was the assumption. So today we look at what's been happening and we realize that the trade deficit actually has not been reduced at all. It's actually gotten larger. And that purchase agreement uh, billions of dollars of goods was largely not fulfilled. So the question is, what happened here? Well, I think that the tariffs as well as the purchase agreements were based on faulty assumptions. Trade deficits are not actually determined by tariffs or exchange rates. They're actually determined by budget deficits and household savings. And the U.S. budget been getting uh, deficits being larger and larger. So when your deficit of a country gets larger and larger, it shows up as a larger trade deficit. And that will always be the case. And thus, therefore, the trade deficit with the world, including China, has gotten larger. The second mistake was, can you negotiate from government to government what a country should be buying from you? And we forget that countries buy based on the decisions of households and companies, not on the basis of what governments say. There's only one category of goods where I would say, the Chinese government can actually sort of like influence it decisively. That's commercial aircraft. But Boeing's had difficulties in the last couple of years because its planes had not been certified. So China's been buying more from Aerobus. 
So that's why, why Chinese households and firms didn't buy any more from the United States. So the trade war and the trade agreements didn't make any sense. And now the big question mark in people's minds, will the United States lower or remove these tariffs because they're causing inflation? They're making U.S. companies less efficient. And uh, Biden administration has not done so because politically it would be very difficult. It would seem like a concession to China to lower these tariffs. But we moved on from a trade war to what I call a far more significant effect, what I call the technology war. Three weeks ago, the Department of Commerce put out a directive severely restricting exports of high-tech products, especially semiconductors, from the U.S. to China, to many major Chinese companies. Now, this restriction covered not just products produced in the U.S., it also covers high-tech products produced elsewhere abroad, and those companies made use of American technologies. And practically all the chips and semiconductors and high-tech products in the world incorporate some U.S. technologies. So this has become a blanket restriction of China's ability to secure technology, advanced technology from the West. This is a major issue. It's going to severely set back China's efforts to become more innovative and more modernized. And I think that the issue, of course, is a tactical one. America worries about losing its competitive advantages. It worries about the military security aspects of, of China's building up its military. But there's also a cost. There's also a cost for America, which is not often discussed. These high-tech U.S. companies earn 30 to 40% of their revenues by exporting to China. If they no longer can do so, they don't have the money to invest and grow. So when the IMF did a study of this, several years ago, of restricting U.S. exports to China, it actually showed that there would be more damage to America than to China, because America requires innovation to grow. And so both sides are going to suffer in the process. There's also a broader issue. I think this is the first signal of what I would call damaging or eliminating or getting rid of what I call the global international economic system as we know it. Growth in the United States Growth globally comes from the transfer of knowledge and competition. So if you restrict competition and you restrict or discourage countries from innovating, you reduce the pressures for knowledge to flow. And I think you're going to see a decline in global growth rates everywhere in the coming years if this somehow cannot be resolved. So we move from a trade war, which is not very, very effective, to what I would call a technology knowledge war, which I think has negative consequences for both sides. All right, thank you. Um, Joel, Taiwan, um, it's always the you know a big elephant in the room when it comes to talking about China. Um, how significant is Taiwan in China's military strategy? And uh, is the PLA ready for a war to take over Taiwan? Um, you know, in with Xi in power, will China be really, um, trying to stick to that timeline uh, to reunite with Taiwan. And I, I think it was, what is it, 19, is it uh, 24, is it 2049 or 2047, something of the sort. Um, so would love your your assessment of the situation of Taiwan. Well, Taiwan, the, the cross-strait contingency has been really central to China's military strategy since 1993. Um, so this isn't something new. Uh, the PLA has postured itself. They've developed capabilities. They've conducted 
relevant training all across uh, the last basically three decades uh, for for this for this kind of scenario. Really, they have two goals. Uh, one is to deter uh, Taiwan independence. And the second is to give their leadership military options uh, if um, they're not able to peacefully settle this dispute then to use uh, to use force to do so. Uh, I would say that on the first goal, deterring uh, overt steps towards legal independence, they've been rather successful. And we can say even now that the current leader of Taiwan, Tsai Ing-wen, has been fairly cautious um, about taking um, dramatic steps, revising the constitution and so on. Um, so I think they've been somewhat successful on the second goal, which is is uh, you know sort of using military force to coerce or even to um, give their leadership options to to occupy the island. Um, they still face really significant challenges, um, and part of it is their own limitations in terms of critical capabilities. Part of it is um, Taiwan's natural advantages in terms of defense. Part of it is the sense in China that they wouldn't just simply be fighting Taiwan, but they would also have to fight some sort of a conflict with the United States and maybe others at the same time. Um, so I don't think they've gotten to the point of confidence that they could say, well, we can exercise this option sometime in the near term. So on the question of timelines, um, the date that has gotten a lot of attention recently has been 2027. Uh, so this is the centennial uh, of the PLA. And so there's been speculation um, running rampant for the last couple of years that China has sort of an implicit timeline uh, to settle this one way or the other by that date. Um, I would argue that this is not a political timeline or even um, a, a, decision, a, a decision timeline for China's leadership. Really, I think this is a timeline for the PLA to ready itself. Um, and I think, you know, U.S. officials, including the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, have said 2027 is not a make or break date for the PLA. It's really a modernization goal. So for them to develop uh, critical capabilities for this uh, contingency. Um, there's also been talk of late about an acceleration of the timelines, and we've seen some U.S. officials say, well, this conflict could come even earlier than 2027. Um, but I think, you know, this has been sort of misconstrued. I don't see from China's point of view um, an acceleration um, of, of, a, of a timeline because of some of the serious constraints uh, that they're facing. Now, what do we learn from the party Congress about all this? Um, I would say that there isn't really much evidence in either the work report that Xi Jinping delivered or the personnel selections um, to indicate that they are moving uh, quickly or more quickly than they wanted to on Taiwan. Um, so the language in the work report on Taiwan was very consistent in the past. They talked about sticking with the past, path of peaceful reunification. They said we don't abandon the potential use of force, but they've said all these things many times in the past. Um, in terms of the broader security environment, you know, security was a clear theme of the party congress. Um, this word, this concept was uh, frequently mentioned, but I don't think they're talking specifically about um, the danger of Taiwan independence. I think they're talking about all around security, the sense that we are in danger um, from the economy, from pandemics, from the US, from terrorism. Um, so I don't think they're addressing uh, security just purely through that lens. And they realize they have a lot of other security challenges they have to deal with uh, in the near term. And then finally, in terms of personnel selection, um, you know, one of the innovations from the Party Congress was selecting a new central military commission. So this is sort of the highest level of military uh, leaders uh, in China. And so uh, they did select uh, three new leaders on this six-person body. Um, and the one choice that got a lot of attention was uh, He Weidong for vice chairman. So kind of the number two leader um, of China's military after Xi Jinping. Uh, this person had been the commander of the Eastern 
Theater Command, which is opposite Taiwan. And so some uh, observers uh, said, well, maybe this indicates that there's a, a plan uh, to go after Taiwan soon. Um, but I don't think so. I think that uh, this person, uh, his uh, basic responsibility is to make sure that they are getting after this 2027 modernization goal. And if we look across the Central Military Commission, you have broader expertise, and only two of them really have ever served or have any knowledge of uh, Taiwan contingencies. So I interpret this not as a war council, but as a group of people who will try to steer a PLA modernization uh, in, in that direction. But I don't see this as uh, a near-term goal, and I don't think that there is much cause for alarm. That I don't think that means that Taiwan can be complacent. I, I think they need to be more serious about their defense, but I don't think that they're going to be um, dealing with a, an invading PLA force sometime uh, in the next couple of years. Interesting. Well, all good things to watch for. Um, thank you all. Um, I mean, it's an incredibly important topic and we're so fortunate to have each of you here today to, to share everything. For more insight and analysis on global events and to learn more about how you can join our community, visit us at network2020.org and follow us on social media.